I'd like for you to turn the New Testament that you have there on uh, your lap to the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and I'll read verses 37 through 48. From Luke 19, beginning at verse 37. And as he, Jesus, was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the day shall come upon you, When your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to cast out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging upon his words. Today is Palm Sunday, and it's the Sunday preceding Easter Sunday, the time when the Christian church celebrates the ascent of Jesus to Jerusalem. It is a significant day when a king comes to town. In Matthew's version, he said that the whole city was moved by him. In one of the newer translations, it has it that the whole city, the whole town went wild with excitement. Now that just doesn't happen every day. The city is not moved to excitement except that the personage who is entering is himself a moving, exciting man. The God-man of Nazareth was just such a personality who created that kind of response. He was the most exciting, moving, dynamic man who has ever lived. Bill Bryant of Campus Crusade asked, Who is the most revolutionary man of history? And then he answers his own question by saying, Jesus of Nazareth is the most revolutionary man in history. He almost immediately commanded, Disciples are destroyers. Um, He almost immediately commanded, Followers are rejectors. For when a man comes who immediately heals the leper and lifts up the fallen and the prostitutes, and breaks up the funerals, and saves sinners. 
Some kind of a memorial response is expected, said Bill Bryant. You can put a scepter in his hand and call him king. Or you can stick a spear in his side and call him crazy. But you cannot ignore him. And so they didn't. When he came to Jerusalem, the whole town went wild with excitement. And they put palm branches in the streets and spread out their garments and they shouted themselves hoarse. Traditionally, we call it his triumphal entry. I want to suggest that it was no triumphal entry. And we probably make a big mistake when we call it that. Oh, to be sure, three million people were in the city of Jerusalem crowding the streets for just one look at him. And they came as far away as Africa and Mesopotamia and Macedonia. And it's true that his disciples shouted and rejoiced, but Jesus didn't. When he got into the city, he went out to the Mount of Olives and he wept. And there is nothing in his response that would indicate he felt that he was coming in in triumph. He did not come up to the throne and ascend to it. He came into the city riding on the foal of a donkey. And when he saw it, he wept. I submit it was no triumphal entry. Because he saw the shallowness of their commitment. You know, sometimes shouts of praise are meaningless. Christianity has to go deeper. It has to mean more than just a few Amen, praise the Lord's at some revival meeting. For Jesus demands commitment. It's easy to praise Him and to sing Hosanna if no commitment is required. I'm reminded of the people who come to church and they applaud the solo and the sermon. They even applaud the church. Got a great church here, man. And they applaud the Lord, but you ask them to make a commitment and their response is negative. It's easy to praise Him when He's acclaimed as history's best man and the doer of good deeds, but when the real issue is drawn and Jesus must be accepted as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lord of life, oftentimes the cheering stops. That's what happened to the multitude in the city of Jerusalem. This multitude that shouted on Friday, shouted on Sunday, Hosanna, was strangely quiet on Friday. Now, it is not the multitude that cried, crucified him. That's what we often like to talk about, what we often like to say. That was a crowd that the high priest had gathered up. But the crowd that shouted, Hosanna in praise to Jesus on Sunday, was strangely quiet on Friday. And I tell you that the silence of the multitude is one of the great enigmas of the cross event. They spread out their palm branches and hailed Him as King early on Sunday. They spread out their garments, hosannas they sing early on Sunday. But where is the sound of their hurrying feet? Where is the crown they offer, the scepter, the seat? For the king wanders hungry, alone in the street, early on Monday. Where is this multitude that shouted on Sunday their hosannas? What a strange mystery is their silence. I think to understand it, we have to understand a couple of factors. And one is the popularity of Jesus. This man commanded a tremendous following. He was exceedingly popular. 
And he kept that popularity even into the last week of his life. There's some reasons that Jesus was popular. One was because when he saw the wounded and the hurting beside the road of history, he paused to help them. You can tell a lot about what makes a man stop. You can tell a lot about a man by the pauses he takes. And so when he saw the multitudes hurting and wounded, he stopped to help them. And there was always somebody who could identify with suffering. His words were popular. He had a way of stripping aside the legalism of his day and his words of authority and simplicity struck right to the heart. He was popular with the common man. He had a way of taking those things which were common and giving them an uncommon value. And the men who followed him were just common men, but they took an uncommon place in history because of the transforming effect of his life. He was exceedingly popular with the multitudes. But I don't think they ever really understand, understood his discipleship. It's becoming apparent now, for Jesus says, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. And in essence, he is saying to his followers, you're going to have to go there and die with me. For the discipleship to which Jesus invited men was a discipleship that was a cross kind of a discipleship and a death kind of discipleship. And Peter said, be it far from thee, Lord. But before we throw stones at Peter, I'm afraid that many of us are on the prowl for a kind of a costless, painless faith, a kind of an ouchless Christianity. But if I understand the New Testament experience of God, it is this, that until a man identifies with Christ in his suffering and, his, and in his death, he cannot identify with Him in his resurrection. This is what Paul meant when he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. If there's no cross, there's no crown. If there's no... Good Friday, there can be no Easter Sunday. I think a second factor enters into the silence of this multitude, and that is the power of public sentiment. It was a carefully devised plot, and this is the scenario. The Jewish leaders say that Jesus claims to be king, and then they accuse him of being in competition with the emperor to overthrow the government. And all of a sudden, the power of two extremes comes into play. For here is this multitude who is shouting Hosanna to Jesus and hailing Him as King. And all of a sudden, they're confronted with this terrible dilemma. If they keep saying that, they too will be associated with a rebellion against the Roman government. And so faced with the two extremes, they chose silence. And I've always believed that it was that silence that hurt Jesus more than anything else at the cross. More than the brutality of the soldiers. More than the accusations of Caiaphas. It hurt him more, the silence of these people that he loved and who loved him. Surely there's somebody in this crowd he had healed. Surely there's a blind man who can see who would stand in his defense. Surely there's a lame man standing on strong legs. Surely there's a multitude of people he had healed and had taught that they had dignity. Surely there's a tax gatherer or a prostitute who learned from him that they were the children of God. But they said nothing. And they let him die defenseless. 
And the silence of the multitude haunts me because I can identify with it. There's a lot of people around that cross with whom we can identify. There's Simon Peter there, but all of us have made religious commitments we've denied in the fire. And there's Judas there, but all of us have made commitments to Christ we've betrayed for secular interest. And there's Pilate there, but all of us have ignored things we've known in our heart to be right in order to save ourselves. I think if I'd been there, I would not be a Simon by the fire or a Judas in the garden or a Caiaphas in the, pi- in the palace, or a Pilate in the court. I think I would have been in that multitude of silent people, milling around, loving Jesus, hating everything they were doing to Him, but saying nothing. For how many times have you been where the principles of Jesus have been crucified? And how many times have you been where a witness for God has been appropriate and needed, and you said nothing? No wonder it's no triumphal entry. For he knew the shallowness of their commitment, a shallowness that in the moment of truth remained silent. It was no triumphant, triumphal entry because he knew the blindness of their heart. And the scripture says that he went out to the Mount of Olives and he wept. Now he didn't just have tears on his face, he The scripture, the word means that his body convulsed with sobs. He wept. Have you ever tried to put yourself in his place to think what he thinks and to feel what he felt? I think he was thinking, these people don't really know who I am and they never really have understood what I've come to do. They were looking for a captain on a stallion. He came as a child in a straw. They thought that the Messiah would come and lead them in outer rebellion. He came talking about inner redemption. They they thought that one day when Messiah comes, He'll set us free by insurrection. He came talking about liberty through crucifixion. And He wept because of their blindness. Now these are the tears of a strong man. Jesus was no weakling. He had the heart of a lion, nerves of steel. His characteristic word was, be of good cheer. And there's something horrible about the sight of a brave man's tears. David was a brave man, and yet to listen to him sob for his son, Oh, Absalom, I would have died for thee, is to be moved to the depth of our heart. Peter was a brave man. And yet we all bow in that shattering moment when he went out and wept. Think about it. The lion of the tribe of Judah is in tears. God has tears on his face. And he wept because of their blindness. They were blind to the impermanence of an earthly glory. And so he says in verse 47... The day is coming, it's just a matter of time when your enemy is going to surround you and they're going to hem you in on every side and they're going to level this city to the ground and not a stone will be left one on top of another. You think so much of this temple, there's coming a day soon when this temple will not be standing, not a stone on another. You think so much of your city, the day is coming when this city is going to be leveled to the ground. 
And so with prophetic insight, he saw what would happen 40 years later when the red rain of Rome came in torrents upon Israel, upon Jerusalem. And the, and the temple was razed to the ground and the city went up in flames. For I'm here to tell you that anything that is not built on God will not last. Nothing that is not built on God will ever last. You think so much of this life, it will not last. You think so much of your possessions, they are doomed to destruction. You think so much of things, they will not last. And so he wept. And he wept because they were blind to the crisis of a divine deliverance. Do you know what he meant when he said, the time of your visitation is at hand and you do not know it? Do you know what he's talking about? In Jewish theology, that refers to an encounter with God that the Jews believed every man would have sooner or later, probably at death, maybe way out at the end of the world. And Jesus was saying right there in His own person that confrontation was taking place. They didn't know it, but the desire of all nations, the Lord of life, the Creator God, had come to the frontiers of Israel. Had, was standing at the gate of Jerusalem and was knocking at the door. They were blind to it. He wept because they did not know that God's last sermon was being declared. That love's last appeal was being extended. That God's last invitation to Israel was being offered. I wonder if he still weeps. I wonder if he weeps this morning because he knows that there are multitudes in this country who are hearing today their last sermon, who are, who are hearing for the last time an invitation, who are witnessing God's final appeal and they're still lost, blind to the crisis of divine deliverance. It's no triumphal entry because of the blindness of their heart and ours. There's no triumphal entry because of the hypocrisy of their faith. Where did he go when he got to town? He went to church. But he went with a, like a man on fire. He had eyes flashing with fire. And he went inside the church with a whip and he drove out the money changers, a man possessed. He was angry. Now you can tell a lot of man, about a man by what makes him angry. He did not get angry when they brought false accusations against him. He was like a lamb mute before the shearers, said not a word. He did not get angry when they abused him and, and beat him and spat on him and did not retaliate. He did not lift his hand. Nor did he get angry when they crucified him. For when the nails tore into his flesh at that very moment when criminals, the commentator says, will often curse and spit on those who are crucifying them. At that moment, at precisely that moment, he prayed, Father, forgive them. But when he saw that his house of prayer had been desecrated, and when he saw the sham of their religious practice and the hypocrisy of their religious faith, when he saw the sleaze factor in Jerusalem, he got angry. He was angry because he couldn't believe that religious people, hear me now, that religious people 
would exploit, would exploit others who were created in the image of God. He got angry because he saw his own people exploiting folk who were created in God's image. And still he's concerned about that exploitation, about the exploitation of the hungry and the, and the disenfranchised of the world. Now you say, I'm not guilty of exploitation. But how can we say that we love God when we are indifferent to the people who are being ground under the wheels of life? And he went straight into the temple and he challenged the money changes and the very system that excluded the unclean Gentile. It's significant that where he speaks here in this passage is in the court of the Gentiles. No, 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 no accident that it's there. For the court of the Gentiles was the outer court in the temple. No Gentile, because he was unclean, could get into the holy place where only the Jews were included. And so in that outer court of exclusion, people came to him. That narrow religious belief and practice had excluded the foreigners and the lame and the poor. And he taught them there. Now we may not be guilty of the same exclusiveness. God forbid we might not say, you don't belong here. But on the other hand, we don't have a burning passion to see people come to Christ and we make very little effort to bring them into His presence either. And I don't know which is worse. And he was angry because all of their religion had to do with formal profession and he made a radical call to obedience. For it is after all obedience that Jesus requires and not burnt offerings. No triumphal entry. It broke his heart. No wonder he wept. And so when he finished with that week, a week that changed the world, they took him out on Friday and they hung him on a cross and they crucified him. That's the king who came to town. That's the king who came to town, naked. That's, that's the man who came to the praises of others, hanging there between two criminals. That's him. That's the man. They shouted, Hosanna, King of kings. He's the one. The cheering stopped when that happened. But let the cheering begin again. Let the cheering begin. Let the shouts of praise begin. Let hosannas ring out again. Let the worship of the people of God begin again because He did not remain on that cross. And when they brought him down and put him in a tomb, he came from there triumphantly. And with the keys of hell and death on his girdle, bursting out of the bowels of the earth, he came. And then he came triumphantly. Let the music begin. Let the song of the Lord begin. Let the hosannas ring, for he is king. He is king. 
A man stood one day in the city of Chicago looking in the window, picture window, store window of a, a building of, of a store, saw this painting of the crucifixion. He was standing there looking at it, just overwhelmed by it. And he was aware that he was joined by a little lad standing beside him. He turned to the little boy and said, Do you know what that means? You know what that's about? And the little boy said, Mister, you don't know what that's about? Well, that man that's died on that cross there is a man who died for us. His name is Jesus. And see that woman what's crying? That's his mother. And you see those soldiers there? They're the ones who crucified him. And the man was in a hurry, had to leave, so he turned to leave. As he walked down the street, he heard the sound of little feet hurrying after, calling, Mr. Mister, wait a minute, I forgot to tell you that he's not on the cross any longer. He rose from the dead. Let the shouts of Hosanna begin. Let the praise of the Lord begin. Let the sacrifice, now that the sacrifice has been made, let the song of the Lord begin. For he's King of kings, Lord of lords. Perhaps one of the greatest love stories that's ever been is the relationship of Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Robert, her husband. Marvelous pieces of literature and love they wrote. One day Elizabeth Browning came down for breakfast from upstairs. She had some pieces of paper with scribbling on it, with writing on it, some work she'd been doing, some poems, she handed them to her husband and said, if you think they're any good, well, you can do what you want to with them. If not, just throw them away sometime. Those poems, those pieces, those works are now the famous songs of the Portuguese. And in one of them she says, the face of the world has changed for me every time, ever since I heard the footstep of your soul. That's how I feel about Jesus. The face of the world has changed for me ever since I heard the footstep of His soul in Jerusalem. And I know He didn't come here so I could shout and call Him King. He came so I'd make a commitment to Him that was deeper than silence. And I know He didn't come here just so I could shout and call Him King. He came here in order that my religious faith would be deeper than that. That my religious conviction would go out to the needs of man around me. That my religious faith would extend beyond the exclusiveness of a four wall. That my religious commitment would go as deep is my own death. Now the question this morning is not, did he come to Jerusalem as king? The larger question is this, is he king in your life? Have you died to self, crowned him king? Have you given him the place that He wants and deserves.
I'm going to pray that you will. Father, when we open up the New Testament and we read of who he was, who is called Jesus, what he did, we are moved. We are moved to commit our life to him, to follow him. We are moved to go beyond a religious profession, an external observance to a faith that is as deep as our life and our death. And Lord, I know that you do not call us to a shallow commitment, but to make you King of kings and Lord of lords. God, give us, grant us the courage, the faith to do that now. To allow you to be first in our life, in our home, in our business, in our church. Because I pray in Jesus' name for his sake. Now the invitations this morning are these. Listen carefully. The first invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to him who is the only Savior. He has to be accepted or rejected as God's Son, the only Savior, the Lord of your life. Have you ever made that kind of commitment to Him? To say, Jesus, I commit my life to You as my Savior and my Lord. I trust You and You only. That's the invitation. The invitation is for us this morning who in that silent multitude that just kind of stands on the outskirts, on the extremity, kind of watches while Jesus and everything He stands for dies. To step out from among that multitude to say, I commit my life to the Lord Jesus Christ and I crown Him the Lord of my life. If it means joining the church, if it means being involved in witness training, if it means going next door and asking forgiveness or down the street to say, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. I want to live for God. I want to be a committed Christian. I want to sell out to Him who deserves to be more than just somebody I would hail with my mouth. These are the invitations. Somebody's coming this morning. I hope it's you. Let's stand to sing. You come.